Welcome to the Sunday Message Podcast of Bethany Church in Fresno, California. We hope this message will encourage and equip you as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If today's message helps you, share it with a friend. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Bethany Church, please reach out on Facebook or at BethanyChurchFresno.com. And now, here's this week's message. Titus chapter 3, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 9 to the end of the chapter and end of the book. Paul writes this, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's see what we can get out of a concluding greeting out of a letter. All right. Now, everyone knows the uh, the saying, a house divided cannot stand. Right. You're familiar with that. Jesus said that, although it's a pretty obviously observable principle. It's the main reason why businesses or marriages or even nations collapse, that they're divided at the core and, and by pulling in different directions, they fall apart. They cook, they, they, they tear, you know, into two and it can happen in the church as well. So it's important to protect unity and peace. Ephesians chapter four, verse three, uh, Paul wrote this. He said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We choose peace with each other to create unity together. And Jesus, in his long recorded prayer of John 17, he prayed that we would be unified, that we would be one, that we'd be together. And so if unity is so important in our sort of missional effectiveness, it should be no surprise that the enemy will do all he can to destroy our unity and bring division. It's the most fundamental tactic of war and politics, right? Divide and conquer. Look at this little quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know if it actually is hers, but it's attributed to her. Pit race against race, religion against religion, prejudice against prejudice, divide and conquer. We must not let that happen here. Pretty wise words almost a 100 years ago, isn't it? Wise words. Unity is a choice. And Paul is finishing this letter to Titus with a call to unity by warning about division and divisive people. And so the place to start is is perhaps really obvious. He says, avoid sort of fruitless conversations. And I'll say it this way, to, to maintain a generous unity together, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, It's a cliche, I know, but look again at verse 9. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are 
unprofitable and useless. Now listen, we could spend a lot of time picking apart the Old Testament law and debating what exactly is still applicable and, and what isn't and um, how it functions today. But Jesus came to complete or fulfill the law. That's what he said. And, and Hebrews 8.13 says that the, the law and the Old Covenant are obsolete. Hebrews 8.13, they're obsolete. So our command is to follow the pattern of Jesus what he taught us to do, what he said, right? None of which contradicts the law. It just reinterprets it and brings it home for us. What's the main thing? If we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing, what's the main thing? Main thing is repent and know that Jesus is the Savior. What's the main thing? Love God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Give generously. Pray constantly. Right? The main thing is to follow Jesus with all your heart and don't worry about the pointless discussions that only divide people. But not everyone gets it. And that's why Paul has to go on and say something in verse 10. Right? There are those who can't leave it alone. They're divisive. They pick at stuff. And so when Paul writes this, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that feels harsh. That feels really cutting. Especially those of us who hate confrontation and we love peace and we love reconciliation. We want just everybody to get along and, and surely we should just be more patient. But for the sake of unity, Paul says this, that we, we cut troublemakers loose. And it doesn't sound very Christian on the surface, does it? We cut troublemakers loose. What exactly is a divisive person? Well, they're the person who, by their words or attitudes or actions, right, they cause rebellion, dissension, uh, uncooperativeness. They tend to be negative and critical. They're always finding fault, always poking at stuff. Um, the Greek word translated here about the divisive person, it really has the meaning of strongly opinionated. That strongly opinionated person. They're always right. They always got to know better, right? Paul says in verse 11 that they're warped, sinful, and self-condemned. A, a contemporary word for, my, for that might be toxic. We use that a lot. Those toxic people. He's saying, push the toxic people out of your life. They're not actually helping you in your walk with Jesus. You think you're going to rescue them, but only Jesus can get through to them in that way. It's tricky. It's tricky because the divisive person is not always obvious. They can be, you know, really spiritual, really religious, educated, sophisticated, all those things. And to most people, they might seem like really smart and godly, like really on their game. But when you watch the fruit of their behavior, you see division, not unity. They're not actually building people up. They're not actually encouraging others in the faith. They're not really using their gifts. The gift of criticism isn't actually a gift in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, right? Years ago, I would get these emails from a church lady who um, would offer helpful input. In fact, she was a bit like the SNL church lady um, or constructive criticism, which is just a euphemism for criticism. Um, right? And now I absolutely do not mind someone disagreeing with me or challenging something, but when someone is only finding fault. They always know better, right? They're elevating their opinion above 
you know, even over kind of leadership decisions and so on, it creates division. Or when you have a leader that refuses to accept the way we do things or, you know, doesn't want to get on board with a, a policy or a new program or something, that damages unity. And without unity, a church cannot grow and it cannot be effective on its mission. A divisive person actually destroys the work of God. And that's why Paul says we're to take them out of the sphere of their influence. It doesn't mean to say you don't love them, but you love them at a distance, at arm's length. And so to be fair, they get a first warning, they get a second warning, and then he says, have nothing to do with them. Cut them loose. It's the most loving thing you can do, actually, for the whole church, as harsh as it may sound. And I'm very, very glad, honestly, that I've seen so little this in my time at Bethany Church. But if you elsewhere have a divisive friend, maybe they talk about their church and they complain about it all the time, maybe you could be the one to warn them and say, hey, that's the that's the church you're talking about. That's the body of Christ. That's the bride of Christ you're talking about. Let's let's be positive. Let's be encouraging. Help them humble themselves and and repent and be unified with the body. All right, so now at at verse 12, um, Paul goes into the final greeting and conclusion of this letter. And, and there's still a couple more helpful lessons even in that. He writes this at verse 12. Paul writes, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Okay, what's going on here? What's happening? Paul is sending somebody to replace Titus on the island of Crete. Okay, so Titus's mission there is, Simon is coming to a conclusion, coming to an end. Remember verse uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul had written, the reason I left you in Crete, right? He had an assignment there. Was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus had a specific task as the pastor for those churches, but it was not a permanent assignment. And now either Artemis or Tychicus would take over still with the same pastoral authority and no doubt with the same commands to teach good doctrine and, and good practice and train them up but Titus would move on to a new assignment. And the believers in Crete were to take instruction from Titus. Listen, they took instruction from Titus not because Titus was this amazing wow personality like, like that guy, like everybody loves that guy, and that's why we listen to him. No, he had a position, he had an assignment, and based on that position, he had the authority in that office of pastor. It was, it was not a kind of personal authority. And, and here's my point on this. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Uh, this is a long one. The office of leader is greater than the person who leads. The office of leader is greater than the person who leads. Let me give you an example. You think about the office of the President of the United States of America. Uh, it's no secret that the dignity of that office has, uh, you know, been breaking down for uh, for a while now. It's, it's declined in that impressiveness. And I think it started a few presidents ago when people started saying, well, I don't like the guy, so he's not my president. Well, a really dumb thing to say. If you're an American citizen, whoever's in that office, whether you like him or not, uh, he's your president, right? And, and you think about, for example, we were shocked by, by Bill Clinton's behavior in office not because it was uncharacteristic of him. He had a long history of immoral behavior. Right? It was uncharacteristic of the president to knowingly 
right? Behave like that. And yet the authority of that office remains. Do you, do you see that sense? Like, so the office of the leader is greater than the person who leads. And in the church, leaders come and go. You know that by now. And it's often wonderful for a church when a pastor stays for a long, long time, 20 or 30 years. I love that, but it's not always the best thing for that church. Uh, speaking very personally right now, like I know the Lord gave me a specific assignment uh, for our time here at Bethany Church. And I didn't know how long that would be. And I think Becky and I were surprised as anyone by the call to serve the Lord in another country. Um, it still doesn't quite seem real, I'll be honest. Right? I think about our time when we were church planting and we had very successfully planted a church and I'd expected we'd stay there for 20 years or more. But the same thing happened. There came a point when the Lord said, you're done here, it's time to move on. And that church, as awesome as it was then, is 10 times more amazing today. And it would not be if we'd stayed because God brought a different leader with a different skill set who was really able to lead it well. So sometimes a different leader is needed for a church to continue to grow. And it's okay. Because ultimately, Bruce, you kind of alluded to this, ultimately we're all replaceable. Whatever role. Unless you're a, a, unless you're a, a wife or husband or a mother or a father, you are replaceable. Those, those roles are irreplaceable. But the office is greater than the person who holds it. I want to take us to the end, the last couple verses. Verses 13 and 14. As we, as we close this letter, he says, um, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for their urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. We're just going to say it this way. Doing good is good for unity. Doing good is good for unity. I mean, have you ever noticed how much fun it is to do a project together that serves and blesses others and how unifying that is? Someone messaged me last night say, hey, did you know about the GoFundMe? We have a, a family in our church that we've been praying for. They're not in our church, actually in Texas. But someone said, hey, did you know about the GoFundMe uh, for, the, for the Todd family, this preemie baby and the kind of overwhelming financial needs and i said oh i i was not aware but i can see that people have started to contribute if you want to know more about that um, reach out and we'll help you get connected to that to that way to support Haley um uh stombach and and well todd last name now right or you think about our journey to bethlehem when we uh we work on that project together good relationships are built it's kind of fun we interact with the community it's good for our unity to do what is good we're actually better as a church when we do that. And we have this very specific development here in verses 13 and 14. So apparently Apollos, um, you read about Apollos in Acts 18 and Acts 19. Apollos and Zenos, the lawyer, don't, don't know anything else about him, right? They were on Crete and they were ready to move on, but needed some financial assistance to do so. So Titus was told to appeal to the church to give those two guys their support and supply that they needed. Why? Well, because verse 14 says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. 
Now, remember the complaint early in this letter, if you were here, chapter 1, that Cretans had a reputation for being lazy, lying gluttons. It's a terrible thing to say about people, but apparently, this, yeah, everybody knows it's true, right? The best way to break free of laziness is to help others. And as an aside, uh, serving others is also a great remedy to some other afflictions like uh, depression and anxiety and, and mon- mental health challenges. Serving others is good for you, but it's good for the church. And by now you've noticed that this business of doing what is good is an absolutely repeating theme in Paul's letter. Right? In just these few pages that we've worked on the last six weeks, Paul's brought it up eight times. Right? That an elder is a man who loves what is good. That corrupted people are unfit for doing good. That older women are to teach younger women what is good. That Titus ought to set an example for the young men of what is good. That God's people are eager to do what is good. That they should be ready to do what is good. That those who trust God will be devoted to doing what is good. And here in verse 14, that God's people should learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. It's kind of a theme in this letter. Do what is good. It's good for you, it's good for the church, and it's good for other people. And doing good is is the norm for the believer. And not just for your friends, doing good for your friends, but doing good for strangers as well. The Bible is filled with direction to care for orphans and widows and the poor and the immigrant and the sick and the imprisoned and the naked and the hungry. Those are all commands from Scripture. And if you cannot care for those who need help and support, then your faith isn't worth much. Think about this. If you have even resentment or even hatred in your heart toward the poor, you've missed the heart of Jesus. And we're not on this earth to accumulate wealth and prestige and power. Right? Jesus said you actually get to store your treasure in heaven by investing it in his work on this earth. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Some of you have been sweating a bit the last few weeks as the stock market has stumbled a little let's call it that (laughs) right i know i'm with you on that becky and i you know we've been diligently following advice to prepare for our retirement and i think we've done okay but all it takes is a pandemic and a few bad political decisions and uh throw a ukraine war in there and uh suddenly that 403b that looked pretty good is not looking so great 401k, depending if you work for a non-profit or a for-profit. Hmm. Suddenly makes your diligence look a little suspect, doesn't it? So then you have to ask the question, is my faith in God? Or is my faith in the stock market? Is my faith in God or is it my faith in my own ability to provide? Where is my faith? Where is my confidence? Where is my trust? And one way that we demonstrate our confidence is in the Lord is by doing what is good and investing what we have into His work. It means physically serving others. Thank you. And also financially investing. And in both of which, I will say this, as a church, I feel like I'm kind of preaching to the choir because you are an amazing church with these things. And as we do that, we experience a greater unity. I would just say, just commenting briefly, like in my time here, I feel like we have really grown more unified as a church. And you know when you also see it? We've done more for the community. We've had more active outreaches. That 
financially you have given more in these last eight or nine years than in many years before that. It's as you do good, God unifies you as a church. And it's just amazing to watch. Um, Christy, I'm going to invite you back. Where Christy and I are going to sing a song together. But the key uh, today really is this. And again, I know it's cliche, but we simply must keep the main thing the main thing. Right? Jesus himself has said it this way. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to, uh, to obey all that I've taught you. And it's the last thing that Jesus told us followers to do. And when we do that, serving Him, being obedient to Him, being on mission, we're going to experience a generous unity together. And then Jesus leaves this fabulous, fabulous promise at the end. Kind of the last words in the book of Matthew. And I will be with you always, even to the very end. Jesus makes a promise that when you go on mission for Him, He will be with you. You pursue the will and the way of Jesus. He will bless you. He will keep you. He will make His face to shine upon you. Let's pray. God, we want to thank You for the challenge and the promise of doing what is good. Lord, we want to be a people that are in unity together. We want to serve you together. We want to love the community around us together because you've called us to do exactly that. We want to be faithful in that. And Lord, where we've been complaining or where we've been somehow divisive, God, we just want to repent of that. We just say, Lord, that's not what we want to be. We want to be faithful in honoring you. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your love for us. Amen. For listening, know that God loves you more than you can imagine. And for everything Bethany Church, check out BethanyChurchFresno.com.